Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In this episode, we are continuing with Chapter 3 of Aidan Balu's work, Christian Non-Resistance in All Its Important Bearings. I will go ahead and read Chapter 3 and then provide some comments and observations and considerations at the end. So here it is, Chapter 3. I devote the present chapter to the consideration of scriptural objections. Our doctrine is obviously sustained by the most abundant and convincing proofs from the scriptures of the New Testament. It forces a degree of conviction on many minds by no means prepared for the great practical change involved, or even for a cordial assent to the doctrine itself. Hence, they fall back behind certain apparently formidable objections, urged by more determined opponents from the scriptures. They demand that these should be satisfactorily answered. It is only fair that it should be done. Objection 1. You throw away the Old Testament. You quote exclusively from the scriptures of the New Testament to prove the non-resistance doctrine. Those of the Old Testament are unequivocally against it. They afford abundant precepts and examples in justification of war, capital punishment, and various forms of penal restraint on criminals. Is not the whole Bible the word of God? Do you throw away and trample underfoot the Old Testament? If your doctrine were of God, it would be equally provable from both testaments. Answer. It is true that I have quoted exclusively from the scripture of the New Testament to prove the doctrine of Christian non-resistance, and I grant that those of the Old Testament, with a few unimportant exceptions, are unequivocally against it, i.e., taken independently of the Christian revelation. I also admit that the whole Bible properly considered and interpreted to be, in a general sense, the Word of God. But I do not admit that the Old Testament to be clearly, fully, and perfectly the Word of God as much as the New Testament, nor to be of equal authority with the latter on questions of doctrine and duty, nor to be the rule of faith and practice for Christians. It is to be held in reverence as the prophecy and preparative of the New Testament, the foreshadow of better things to come. If I can prove this to be the true character and office for the Old Testament, I shall thereby silence the objection before us. Not only so, I shall demonstrate that I pay the highest respect to both Testaments, and that those who claim for the old and equal authority with the new discredit both. The scriptures of the two Testaments shall speak for themselves. What they say of each other must determine the matter. Voice of the New Testament We will commence with the New Testament. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Hebrews 1, 1-2 Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him that appointed him as also Moses in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he that buildeth the house hath more honor than the house. Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are now. Hebrews 3, 1, 2, 3. 5 and 6. For a perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, 
What further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek, and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change of the law. There is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before, for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh to God. By so much was Jesus made the surety of a better testament. Hebrews 7, 11, 12, 18, 19, and 22. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry than they, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the days when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Hebrews 8, 6, and 13. Also Hebrews 10, 1 and 2. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Galatians three nineteen twenty three and 25 Whereby when ye read... Ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Ephesians 3, 4, and 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away? How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory which excelleth. Seeing then that we have such a hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, who put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. 2 Corinthians 3, 5-8 and 10-15 Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and to great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Acts twenty-six, twenty-two, and 23. 
For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you, saying, Ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandments. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than those necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood, and from things strangled and from fornication, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. And by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God arise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after have likewise foretold of these days. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one such that accuses you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my word? John five forty-five through 47 We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. John three forty-five. These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Luke twenty four forty four. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was not the light, but sent to bear witness of that light, the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. John bore witness of him, and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I spake, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. John 1, 6 through 8, 15, 17, and 18. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given to him from heaven. Christ must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. John 3, 27, 31, and 34. Such is the testimony of the New Testament Scriptures. The objector professes to hold them, at least equally as authoritative with those of the Old Testament, and to receive the entire Bible as the Word of God. Now, does he implicitly believe what is declared in the foresighted passages? Does he believe that Christ was counted worthy of more glory than Moses? That Moses was a servant, but Christ a son over his own house? That perfection was not by the Levitical priesthood? That Christ is the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek? That the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change to the law? That the old law made nothing perfect? That Jesus was made the surety of a better testament? The mediator of a better covenant? That the old covenant was faulty? That it waxed old and was ready to vanish away? That the law was a mere schoolmaster to bring mankind to Christ? And that the New Testament is not of the letter which killeth, but the spirit which giveth life. 
that the law was a ministration of death whose glory was to be done away with, that the Christian dispensation excelleth in glory, and that the end of the Mosaic dispensation was to be abolished, that a veil remaineth untaken away from a certain Judaizing class of minds in reading the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ, that Moses and the prophets wrote of Christ, that Moses wrote of him when he announced the future coming of a prophet, whom the people should hear in all things, that the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist, and then the kingdom of God was preached. That John was greatest among prophets previously born, and yet inferior to the least in the gospel kingdom. That Christ was before and above John from heaven and above all, endowed with the Spirit beyond measure, the true light of the world. If he believes all this, what becomes of his objection? If he believes it not, what becomes of the New Testament? Voice of the Old Testament And what says the Old Testament? Does it contradict the testimony of the New? Does it represent itself as the perfect and final revelation of God, respecting divine truth, human duty, and destiny? Does it claim a higher mission, or more permanent authority, than is ascribed to it in the New? Does not Moses predict Christ and enjoin that he shall be heard in all things? Do not the prophets foreshow the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of a new covenant, superior to that of Sinai? Do not all the types and shadows of the old dispensation presuppose a new and more glorious one? Is there any need of my quoting texts from the Old Testament scriptures to this effect? No, the objector will not demand it. He will spare me the labor, for he must admit the obvious truth. To doubt it would be to doubt the divine inspiration of both testaments, and thus to do the very thing he so much deprecates, discredit the whole Bible. If then the New Testament claims to supersede the Old, and the Old, by prophecy, type, and shadow, announced beforehand the coming in of a more glorious dispensation than itself, the New, the point is settled forever. The New Testament supersedes the Old on all questions of divine truth and human duty, in affirming this, I only affirm what both Testaments unequivocally declare respecting themselves and each other. To question this is virtually to question the credibility of both. To affirm the contrary is to charge falsehood on both. Instead, therefore, of throwing away the Old Testament, I receive its testimony and render it a just reverence. By looking to the New Testament and accepting it as my rule of faith and practice, I render the most honorable obedience to the teachings of the old, whereas they who turn back from the perfection of the new to the imperfection of the old, from the substance to the shadow, from sunlight to lamplight, to determine their Christian duty, trample on both testaments and invalidate the whole Bible. They believe neither, they obey neither. In this view of the subject, the Old Testament being in its nature and design a prophecy and foreshadow of the new is not against but for non-resistance, notwithstanding the anti-non-resistant character, for the time, of its particular precepts and examples, because it is, on the whole, for Christ and the supreme authority of his teachings, non-resistance included. It is for the New Testament, with all its peculiarities, and for the excellency of the glorious gospel. Who can gainsay this? Hence, for professed Christians to quote its precepts and examples as applicable to the present dispensation is not only a gross perversion, 
but a kind of pious fraud, not to be tolerated for a moment. That man can be no friend to the Old Testament who drags it into overbearing conflict with the New. He is the enemy of both. Nor is he the friend of Moses who claims equality for him with Jesus Christ. It is no better than the attempt to turn a faithful herald into a rival of the king, his master, whose approach he is commissioned to announce and prepare for. Yet there have never been wanting those who have set up Moses in superiority to Jesus. Moses predicted and instituted preparations for the coming of a prophet whom the Lord God should, in due time, raise up. That prophet was Christ. And what did Moses enjoin respecting the reverence to be paid to Christ? Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. Well, the predicted one came into the world and spake as man never before had spoken. But he corrected some, modified others, and absolutely abrogated several of the sayings of Moses. Moses, for the hardness of the people's hearts, had authorized them to divorce their wives for ordinary causes of dislike. But Jesus imperatively forbade them to do so, except for one cause, fornication. Moses sanctioned sacred and judicial oath-taking and enjoined the most faithful performance of all vows. But I say unto you, swear not at all, is the injunction of Jesus. Moses said, life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. Thus is the mandate of the new prophet. This very superiority of Jesus to Moses became an offense to the Jews. Who makest thou, thou thyself? said they contemptuously. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. But Jesus said, If ye had believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Yet he became to them a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. They would not hear him in all things, even though solemnly enjoined by Moses to do so. The same stumbling still happens among professing Christians. When the plain, non-resistant precepts of Jesus are urged upon them, they are demonstrated to be prescriptive requirements of the gospel. They are accounted hard sayings. The old law of retaliation is so sweet, and inflictions of evil are so convenient as means of resisting evil, that though unable to avoid the obvious non-resistant construction of the language in which those precepts are expressed, they retire behind the authority of Moses and deny that Jesus abrogated his sayings. They do not know what Jesus really meant, but they affect to be certain that he left war, capital punishment, penal inflictions, and personal resistance, just where Moses did. Though Jesus expressly refers to the sayings of Moses, life for life, eye for eye, and tooth for tooth, and revokes it, still they adhere to it. And this they do under pretense of extraordinary reverence for the word of God, the whole Bible, alleging that non-resistance condemn Moses and the Old Testament in the very act of receiving Jesus in the New Covenant for what those precursors announced they should be. But the accusation returns upon their own heads. They are the condemners of Moses in the Old Testament, for if they believed Moses and the prophets, they would believe in Jesus in the New Testament as more excellent, glorious, and authoritative than their forerunners. But as it is, they receive neither the Old nor the New Testament, says the Word of God, in any such sense as each separately, and both mutually, purport to be. Is it to be believed, then, 
that if they could summon Moses from the world of spirits, he would commend them for their adherence to his warlike and punitive precepts regardless of Christ's non-resistant precepts? Would he thank them for overbearing and nullifying the laws of Jesus by perpetuating and enforcing his code? Would he not rebuke them for their unbelief and rebellion of soul? Would he not, like Elias, say, He that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that is of the earth is earthly. He that cometh from heaven is above all. Hear him in all things. I consider the objection under notice fairly answered. Objection 2. The Scourge of Small Cords And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen, and sheep, and doves, and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, I make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thy house hath eaten me up. Is not this transaction of Jesus directly contrary to your doctrine of non-resistance? Answer. Whether the conduct of Jesus on this occasion was inconsistent with my construction of his non-resistant precepts depends very much on the particular facts of the case. Did Jesus injure or threaten to injure any person whom he expelled from the temple? Did he impair the life or health of any human being? Did he wantonly destroy property? Did he commit any injurious act on the body, mind, or rightful estate of any persons concerned? If he did, his conduct was inconsistent with what I have defined to be Christian non-resistance. If he did not, it is perfectly reconcilable with my doctrine. That he displayed an extraordinary zeal for the religious honor of the temple is certain. That by some remarkable means he caused a considerable number of persons trafficking within the temple suddenly to remove from the same with their animals and other effects is granted. That those persons had no right to occupy the temple for such purposes and ought to have voluntarily removed upon the remonstrances of Jesus will, I trust, be admitted on all sides. The precise point of inquiry is, did Jesus inflict any injury on the persons, estate, or morals of those who were caused to remove by his interference? If it is to be presumed that he inflicted blows on the men with his scourge of small cords, and that he violently upset tables covered with coins, scattering it in all directions, I should have to admit that he injured, more or less, those whom he drove out of the temple. But I want some proof that he touched a single person with his scourge, and that in overthrowing the money changers' tables, he exhibited a single undignified gesture. He urgently and authoritatively commanded the intruders to remove those things thence, and probably assisted in pouring their money into such vessels as were at hand, and in removing the fixtures they had constructed for the convenience. In all this, he was earnest and determined, no doubt. But was he violent, outrageous, or punitive? Are we to imagine him rushing furiously among the sacrilegious, smiting right and left whomever he might reach with his scourge, knocking one thing one way and another the other way, tearing up and kicking over benches, tables, and seats, like the leader of a mob? Some minds seem to imagine such proceedings as these, and of course conclude that many grievous cuts of the scourge remained on the persons of the expelled, and that money 
and other property was wantonly destroyed or wasted, or at least lost to its owners. But as I have an equally good right to imagine how Jesus acted on this occasion, I shall presume that he did nothing unworthy of the principles, the character, and spirit which uniformly distinguished him. When he saw the temple occupied by such a mixed multitude of pretended worshippers, some really devout, some hypocritically observing their formalities, and many others who, while professing to be promoting the service of God, were intent only on acquiring gain, crowding their cattle, fowls, and money-changing tables hard upon the sanctuary, so that the lowing of oxen, the bleeding of sheep, cooing of doves, clinking of coin, and vociferations of the keepers mingled confusedly with the prayers, hymns, recitations, and responses of the devotees. His soul was filled with grief, loathing, and abhorrence. A divine zeal fired his mind to testify against and suppress this gross confusion and sacrilegious disorder. Taping, taking up from the pavement a few of these rushes, or pieces of small cord made of rushes, which chanced to lie about him, he fastened them together in the form of a scourge or switch, and holding it up as an emblem of the condemnation in which the multitudes had involved themselves, he commenced rebuking them for corrupting the divine worship and mocking the Almighty with such a medley of prayer and traffic. Waxing warmer in his denunciation, he assumed a high moral and religious tone of authority and commanded the temple to be instantly cleansed of all those nuisances. The people, amazed and overawed by the truth, justice, earnestness, and uncompromising energy of his rebukes, shrunk backward from his presence, yielded to the impulse which his moral force imparted to them, almost involuntarily obeyed his directions, and in a short time were actively engaged in the work of removal. Jesus, waving the emblem of condemnation and reproach, but without harming either man or beast, followed up the retreating throng, urging forward the cattle, expediting the clearing and taking down the money changers' tables, and pouring forth with increasing fervor his rebukes and admonitions into the ears of the people till the work was consummated. I take for granted that in this whole proceeding, spiritual and moral power was the all-controlling element, that Jesus used very little physical force, and that little uninjuriously, that he acted in all respects worthily of his authority, dignity, spirit, and mission as the Son of God, that there was nothing of the mobcrat, fanatic, or police officer in his manner, and that he did no injury to any human being, nothing but good to all parties concerned. This is what I imagine respecting this affair. There is no positive proof one way or the other. As to the particular facts, we are left to form the best judgment we can in view of the probabilities. These are all on the non-resistant side of the question. It is unnatural, absurd, and altogether improbable to suppose that Jesus drove out so large a number of persons by actually scourging or threatening to scourge their bodies, that he severely scourged their minds with just reproof, of which his rush scourge was a significant emblem, I willingly admit. And in this, there is nothing inconsistent with non-resistance, as I have defined it. I insist, then, that it was neither mobocratic, military, political, or any mere physical force by which Jesus cleansed the temple, but divine, spiritual, and moral power. Therefore, I throw the laboring ear upon the objector and demand that he adduce some evidence other than mere inference or conjecture, that the Savior struck a single person with his scourge 
or otherwise absolutely injured any human being. When something like this shall be proved, I will confess the force of the objection. Until then, I shall consider it sufficiently answered. Objection 3. The Two Swords According to the 22nd chapter of Luke, Christ directed his disciples to provide themselves swords. He that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Swords could be of no other use than as weapons of war or of self-defense. How can this be reconciled with your doctrine of non-resistance? Answer. There is one other use to which the sword might possibly be put. It might be employed on a memorable occasion as the significant emblem of injurious resistance for the purpose of emphatically inculcating non-resistance. I will attempt to demonstrate that this was the special use to which Jesus intended to apply it in the case before us. He gave this direction to buy swords at the last Passover, just before his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he had given it, his disciples presently responded, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, It is enough. How could two swords be enough to arm twelve men for war or self-defense? This single fact shows that such was not the design of Jesus. He had a more sublime purpose. When Judas gave the traitorous kiss and the multitude approached to seize Jesus, his disciples demanded, saying, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Matthew informs us how Jesus disposed of the sword. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into its place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. So saying, he touched the wounded ear and restored it, suffering himself to be borne away by his enemies without resistance. Thus, the sequel proved that he caused swords to be provided for that occasion, two only being enough, for the sole purpose of emphatically, finally, and everlastingly prohibiting the use of the instrument even by the innocent in self-defense. Ever after this, those apostles, and for a long time, the primitive Christians, conscientiously eschewed the use of the sword. These three facts prove my assertion. Number one, two swords were enough. Number two, the moment one of these was wielded in defense of betrayed innocence, it was preemptorily stayed, the wound caused by its healed, and the sublime mandate given, put up thy sword again into its place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. And three, the apostles and primitive Christians obeyed the injunction never afterwards making the least use of such deadly weapons. This objection, then, ends in solid confirmation of the non-resistant doctrine, and may be appreciated accordingly. Objection 4. The Death of Ananias and Sapphira The sudden death of Ananias and his wife Sapphira for deception practiced on the apostles, in keeping back a portion of their estate for private use, while pretending to consecrate the whole to the use of the church, seems to have been virtually an infliction of capital punishment. Is this reconcilable with your non-resistance? Answer. The death of those persons is not represented as the act of the apostles, or as in any manner procured or occasioned by them. It is recorded as the visitation of God without any curse, imprecation, or wish of men. This will more fully appear from the record itself. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price his wife, also being privy to it, 
and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. Three hours after, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in, Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straight away at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. Acts 5, 1-5, and 7-10 Is there any intimation in this account that Peter, or any of the other apostles, assumed judicial authority over those persons, or that they assumed any power, human or divine, over their lives, or that they caused occasion, imprecated, or desired their death? Certainly not. The case, then, is not one on which the objection can pertinently rest. I therefore dismiss it. Objection 5. Human Government. The Thirteenth of Romans. Human government is recognized in the New Testament as the ordinance of God for good to mankind. Rulers are declared to be a terror, not to good works, but to the evil ministers of God and revengers to ex- uh, execute wrath upon him that doth evil, who bear not the sword in vain, and ought to receive tribute, custom, and honor at the hands of Christians, not only for wrath, but also for conscience's sake. Paul pleaded his citizenship as a Roman to obtain an honorable discharge from prison, and on another occasion to save himself from the scourge. He applied for military protection to save his life from the forty conspirators, and appealed to Caesar to obtain justice in his defense against the accusations of the Jews. See Romans 13, Acts 16, Titus 3, 1 Peter 2. Now, as human government, in all its various forms, with its military and penal terrors, is the ordinance of God for good to mankind, as its rulers are declared to be the ministers of God for the protection of the innocent and the punishment of the guilty, and as its requirements are to be respected with submission, it follows that Christians, instead of non-participating therein, on account of war, capital punishment, and penal inflictions, ought to share in its responsibilities and be its firmest supporters, always conscientiously endeavoring to render it in the highest degree efficient for its divinely appointed purpose. Here, then, is an insuperable objection to your doctrine of non-resistance, certainly so, as respects government, war, capital punishment, etc. Answer. This is by far the most plausible and seductive objection now urged against Christian non-resistance. It deceives and misleads more good minds and is harder to be answered than any other. And yet, it is essentially fallacious and invalid. This I will endeavor to demonstrate. Government is the bond of social order. It is that directing and regulating authority which keeps individuals in their proper relations to each other and the great whole. The intelligent Christian must contemplate it in three several characters. Number one, government per se. Number two, government de jure. And number three, government de facto. Government per se is authority exercised to maintain and promote moral order. 
Moral order, of course, presupposes rational social beings. When such beings are in a state of true moral order, they are right-minded, and being right-minded, gradually reduce all things physical to the right condition. Mind governs matter, and moral authority governs mind. Moral order involves all other order. Imperfect moral order leaves all things in a state of imperfect order. Moral disorder draws after it all manner of physical disorder. Therefore, all depends on a supreme moral authority or government. This must be inherently divine. It is original and self-existent in God only. Government per se, then, is essentially divine. It is of and from God. It is not original in any created being. Wherever it exists, it is derivable from God. If so, there is, strictly speaking, no such thing as human government. Man is always subordinate to God and can have no right to enact any law or to exercise any governmental power contrary to the divine law and government. If human nature possessed original, independent, governing authority, men could rightfully repeal or nullify the divine law. Now they cannot. Consequently, all law and government absolutely contrary to the law and government of God is morally null and void. But all law and government, in accordance with the divine law and government, is morally binding on every human being. This presents government in its second character, government de jure, or of absolute right. That all human government ought to be conformed to the standard of the divine, none will deny. If they were thus conformed, they would cease to be human in their spirit and character. They would become incarnations and elaborations of the divine. But as the word human when joined to the word government, may imply nothing more than a human manifestation in a well-regulated social organization, I will not discard its use, my, uh, my meaning being understood. I will say, then, that Christian non-resistance, so far from conflicting with government per se, or human government de jure, i.e., human government strictly subordinate and conformed to the divine government, holds the first supremely sacred and the last as its grand desiderantum. And on this very account, it requires the disciples of Christ to keep themselves disentangled from all such human governments as are fundamentally repugnant to the divine government, all such as are, as are not de jure according to the law of God declared by Jesus Christ. This brings into view the third character, in which non-resistants are obliged to contemplate government. Government de facto as it is in fact. And what has human government ever been, in fact, from the beginning of, to this day? Has it been identical with the divine government? Has it been radically government de jure, according to the law of the living God? Is the present government of the United States, with all its captivating professions and really good things, fundamentally a Christian government? Who will dare to say so? What then was human government de facto in the, in the apostolic times? The government of Herod, Pilate, Nero, and the Roman Caesars, under whom oppression, injustice, tyranny, and cruelty rioted on human rights, deluged the habitable globe with blood, crucified the Son of God, and made myriads of martyrs. Now, a preliminary question to be settled is whether the Apostle Paul, in the 13th chapter of Romans, speaks of government per se, 
or of government de jure, or of government de facto. If only of the first or second, then is there no incompatibility of his words with non-resistance, and the objection falls to the ground? But if he speaks of of human governments and rulers such as they were in the Roman Empire, further investigation will be necessary to set the subject in the true light. I will take for granted that he was speaking of the governments and rulers under whom Christians then lived, for I can suppose nothing else. How the Apostles Viewed the Then-Existing Governments Taking this ground, we wish to know precisely how he and the other apostles viewed those governing powers, and how they counseled the disciples of Christ to feel and act with regard to them. If Christ and his apostles regarded the Caesars and their subordinate kings, governors and magistrates, as moved and approved of God, as his conscious ministers in carrying on the government of those times, if they really held the then-existing governments of the earth to be ordained of God, in the same sense that their own spiritual, religious, and moral authority was, then is the objection before us unanswerable. Then, of course, I must admit that it is the duty of Christians to share in the responsibility of any government under which they may live, and to support its requirements in all things, war, capital punishment, persecution, idolatry, slavery, and whatever else it may exact. It would then be God's own law and voice to be obeyed, implicitly in all things. There could be no limitations or exceptions. Did the apostles teach such doctrine as this? If they did, how happen it that they and the primitive Christians kept themselves so scrupulously aloof from the governments of their times? No, the objector will not contend for any such unqualified endorsement of human government by his apostles. He will disclaim such extreme conclusions. He will admit the gross corruption, tyranny, and wickedness of those very governments which Paul declares to have been ordained of God. He will admit more than I shall stop to demand of horrible impiety, iniquity, and persecution on the part of those very rulers whom the apostles declared to be the ministers of God, avengers to execute the wrath on evildoers. He will not argue that such governments as those of the Herods and Pilots and the Neros were ordained of God in the same sense that the Church of Jesus Christ was, nor that those bloody-minded rulers and their agents were ministers of God, consciously and approvedly, as were the apostles. He knows that Paul never intended to be so understood. Here, then, is the mischievous little catch of the objection. Words and phrases are taken in a false sense. There is a sense in which it is true that there is no power but of God, in which the powers that be are ordained of God, in which rulers, even the worst of them, are not a terror to good works but to the evil, in which they are the ministers of God for good to the righteous, and the avengers to execute wrath on men of violence. But what is this sense? Let us investigate the matter. Submission to, not participation in, government enjoined on Christians. It is clear that Christians are everywhere in the New Testament enjoined to render respect and submission to human governments, kings, rulers, and magistrates, They are forbidden to resist the powers that be or their ordinances by any act of wanton disobedience, insurrection, sedition, or violence whatsoever. 
They are commanded to obey them in all things not involving disobedience to God, and then to do their duty patiently, suffering whatever persecution, penalties, or violence government may inflict upon them. But it is equally clear that Christians are nowhere in the New Testament enjoined to enter into political combinations, nor to accept offices of trust and emolument, civil or military, under any human government, nor to apply to courts of law for redress or injuries committed upon them, nor to seek personal protection from the civil or military power. All this being assumed, we wish to ascertain whether Christians are enjoined to pay respect, submission, and tribute to governments and their administrative officers, otherwise than to bodies of men or individuals not governmentally organized, constituted, and empowered. It would seem that they are. They are to render respect, submission, tribute, and custom to governments and rulers as such. There must then be reasons for paying this peculiar deference and homage. And what are they? Paul presents them in the passage referred to, Romans 13, 1-7. But there is a difficulty in determining precisely what he means by such terms and phrases as ordained of God, ordinances of God, ministers of God. What is the true sense of these expressions? Let us see if we can determine. In what sense the powers that be are ordained of God? It cannot be in the same sense that he requires them to be just what they are and to do just what they do. It cannot be in the sense that they can do no wrong, commit no sin, and deserve no punishment. It cannot be in any such sense as that kings, counselors, rulers, and magistrates are not moral agents or are in any manner absolved from the common obligations of other men to love God with their whole heart, to love their neighbors as themselves, to forgive the trespasses of the offenders, to love their enemies, bless those that curse them, and do good to them that hate them. It can be in no such sense as would change the law of God, reverse right and wrong, or screen them from condemnation in anything sinful. It must be in some general sense a sense which implies merely their necessity in the nature of things, and that they are overruled in the providence of God for the good of mankind. In this sense, they certainly are ordained of God, and in this sense, kings, presidents, governors, and rulers are ministers of God, instruments in the grand economy of his providence for the good of well-doers, and the punishment and restraint of evildoers. And this is as true of the most corrupt, perverse, tyrannical rulers as of the more worthy. It was true of Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Nero, and Robespierre, as of Melchizedek, David, Antonius, and Washington. Hence, we must make a great difference between a consciously inspired and approved minister of God and those ministers of God that bear not the sword in vain, that are a terror to evildoers, and that are avengers to execute wrath because these latter have frequently no consciousness that they are instruments in the divine hand, that he is using them to any holy purpose, or that he approves of their conduct. On the contrary, they are frequently conscious of setting at defiance his law and judgments, and of trampling underfoot everything divine and human which appears to stand in the way of their selfishness, ambition, revenge, and lust. Pharaoh as God's minister. Thus it is written concerning Pharaoh, For this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared through all the earth. 
But Pharaoh had no consciousness of all this. It entered not into his motives. He acted entirely according to his own perverse and wicked inclinations. And God punished him just as if nothing but evil was the result from his tyrannical reign. Yet in the great providential sense, he was ordained of God, was the servant or minister of God for good to Israel and for the punishment of the cruel Egyptians. He knew not the use God was putting him to. He intended not the good which he was made to promote, and therefore received according to the evil which he did intend. Yet probably the whole human race is now in a better condition for his having oppressed the children of Israel, and thereby hastened their exodus from Egypt. The results have been good, by reason, not of his righteous motives, but of an all-wise, overruling providence which made the tyrant unconsciously a minister of its beneficent purposes. The Monarch of Assyria as God's Minister So was it with the Assyrian government and its monarch. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against a hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so. Wherefore, it shall come to pass, when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. For he saith, By the strength of my hand have I done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? Thus was the Assyrian government ordained of God in the apostles' sense, and the king thereof made to be God's minister, servant, instrument. He was made to be so not only without any consciousness, but against his own proud, ambitious, and vindictive will. And like Pharaoh before him, he was judged according to the evil he intended, and not according to the good which God obliged him, unwittingly, to subserve. He was made a rod of correction to hypocritical Israel, and the divine hand a terror to evildoers, even while being himself a gigantic evildoer. He bore not the sword in vain, howbeit he meant not so. Query, would this have been a good reason why the prophets and pious portion of Israel should go and connect themselves with his government or army? Yet it was a good reason why they should persevere in declaring the truth and promoting righteousness and impatiently awaiting the deliverance of divine providence. Nebuchadnezzar as God's minister Nebuchadnezzar affords another instance of the same ordination and overruling of God. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north. And Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, my minister, and will bring them against this land. And it shall come to pass when seventy years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon, and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity. Jeremiah 25, 9 and 12. Was Nebuchadnezzar God's minister for good to Jeremiah and the faithful, but an avenger to execute wrath on the wicked Israelites? Was he one who bore not the sword in vain, and who was a terror to evildoers? Such God made him to be. But was he conscious of it? Was it his motive? Did he work righteousness? 
Was he not really a very wicked man? Did not God condemn and punish him? Would it have been commendable in Jeremiah and the upright few among the Jews to have gone over and become soldiers in his army? They did indeed peaceably go out and surrender to him and counseled their countrymen to submit to his government on the very ground that God had determined to humble them for their great national sins and had in his providence given Nebuchadnezzar power to subdue them. But they never held up the invading monarch as righteous and approved in the sight of God. The Roman government. If we descend to Paul's time and contemplate the Roman government, its Caesars and their governors of provinces, should we not be obliged to view them in the same light? We might indeed find many laws, institutions, measures, and particular acts of administration worthy of commendation, which no good man would wish depreciated. But how much of the tyrannical, oppressive, cruel, and utterly abominable would rise up before us to awaken our disgust and abhorrence. What shall we think of the Emperor Nero, under whom Paul, Peter, and thousands of Christians were put to death, whose name has become universally infamous for cruelty, persecution, and brutality? Yet he was a minister of God, a terror to evildoers, an avenger to execute wrath, one who bore not the sword in vain, to whom tribute should be paid, honor rendered, and unresisting submission offered. Paul, Peter, and the Christian martyrs all acted accordingly. And though he persecuted them unto death, it was doubtless true that God in his providence made him, in spite of his wickedness, a minister to them for good, causing all things to work together for good to them as the true lovers of righteousness. How else shall we understand the apostles' doctrine? or interpret the persecutions inflicted on them by the powers ordained of God, and by rulers like Nero and his deputies, the ministers of God. We cannot for a moment regard these powers as approved of God, nor those tyrant monsters as his conscious ministers, the oracles and conscientious doers of his will. And yet, in the general sense, the great providential sense, all Paul says of them is true nor is his declaration of this truth useless or unimportant. It is necessary for the comfort, support, and right conduct of Christians amid the uproar, tumult, and apparent confusion of governmental affairs. They must see by faith the hand of their Father guiding the helm of events, restraining the wrath of man, and overruling the most powerful agencies of human society for good. Otherwise, they would often despair of the world's redemption, and be thrown into the foaming currents of retaliation, revolution, violence, and war. But now, they may do their duty without fear, in full confidence that the Lord God omnipotent reigneth in righteousness over all governments, monarchs, kings, rulers, and magistrates, judging them according to their own proper motives and works by overruling their most perverse doings for the particular good of the just and the general good of the universe. Respects wherein government is ordained of God. I come then to the following conclusion. Number one, that government of some sort supplies a fundamental want of human nature and must exist wherever men exist. In this respect, it is ordained of God. Number two, that human governments de facto are barbarisms, corruptions, perversions, 
and abuse of the true government de jure, which God, through Christianity, aims to establish among mankind, and are therefore the nearest approaches which the mass of men in their present low, mortal conditions are capable of making to the true ideal. In this respect, government is ordained of God. That the worst of governments are preferable to absolute anarchy, being the least of two evils, and rendering the condition of man, on the whole, more tolerable. In this respect, the powers that be are ordained of God. Number four, that human governments generally proclaim the sanction and sanction some great truths and duties, execute some justice, and intentionally maintain more or less wholesome order, that they are in many respects positively good in motive and deed, thus far conforming to the divine government. In this respect, they are ordained of God. Number five, wherein human governments and their administrators are fundamentally tyrannical, selfish, oppressive, persecuting, unprincipled, and morally abhorrent, they are overruled in the hand of God as unwitting instrumentalities for the punishment and restraint of violence and for quickening and purifying the moral sense of the righteous to superinduce in them a holier, more devoted, and mightier activity in the great work of human reformation. In this respect, the powers that be are ordained of God, and rulers are ministers of God for good to the just, but of wrath to the children of wrath. Therefore, Christians are to respect, submit, and render homage to the governments and rulers under whom they live, however anti-Christian and even persecuting, taking care to obey them in all well-doing, to conform to their requirements in all matters not conflicting with the divine requirements, differing from them as peaceably as possible, suffering their wrongs patiently in hope, withstanding them only for the righteousness' sake in things absolutely sinful, and then enduring their penalties with non-resistant meekness and submission. But at the same time, they are to be true to the kingdom of God, faithful in their allegiance to the great law of Christ, never departing from it for the sake of assuming the reins of any human government or obtaining its honors, emoluments, advantages, approbation, or protection. If they can enter into any government and carry their Christianity with them, unadulterated and untrammeled, let them enter. If not, it is their imperative duty to remain out of it, peaceable, unoffending subjects. Their mission is a higher and nobler one than that of the worldly politician, statesman, or ruler. They must not desert, betray, or dishonor it. If they continue faithful, they will gradually draw up human government to the divine standard. If they lower themselves down by renouncing or compromising their principles, for the sake of participating in any fundamentally anti-Christian government, hoping thereby to elevate the moral tone of such government, they will infallibly be disappointed. They will sink themselves, and with them, the government will sink still lower than before. They must everlastingly insist on the principles and precepts of Jesus Christ, and whatever will not come to those, leave to its own genius and doom. God will take care of all the rest, for there is no power but of God, and subject to his own sovereign disposal. The Christian has nothing to care for but to be a Christian indeed, allowing himself never to be transformed into anything or committed to any undertaking essentially inconsistent with the sublime profession. If I have taken a correct view of this important but difficult subject, 
I have fairly removed the pending objection so far as it rests on the 13th chapter of Romans and similar passages. I am confident this view is substantially correct, and I do not believe the opposers of Christian non-resistance can give any other view which will harmonize decently, either with the plain tenor of the scriptures or with their own doctrine respecting the nature and functions of civil government. Remains only that I touch on that part of the objection which asserts that Paul in certain cases resorted to human government, idolatrous, warlike, and despotic as it then was, to secure immunity, protection, and justice. Paul's conduct in relation to government. This is a misapprehension, or at least a false view of the facts. Did Paul ever commence a prosecution at law for the redress of injuries perpetrated on his person, property, or rights? Did he ever apply to the civil or military authorities for personal protection, when at large, pursuing his usual avocation? Never. Such a case is not on record. The cases cited all occurred when he was a prisoner in charge of the government officers. The first instance is mentioned in Acts 16.37. Paul and Silas had been thrown into prison and cruelly beaten by order of the magistrates of Philippi. The next morning, those magistrates sent directions to the jailer to let them go. But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison. And now do they thrust us out privily? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. The result was that the magistrates, knowing that they had proceeded unlawfully, were glad to acknowledge their error and discharge the prisoners in an honorable manner. This was all Paul demanded. He and Silas had done nothing, even according to the law of the land, to merit such vile treatment. And knowing that they had a right as Roman citizens to redress, they meant that the magistrates and the public should understand the facts. They, however, brought no action for redress, but were content to forgive their injuries, if only they might be regarded as the injured party, and as such, reputably discharged. This is just what every non-resistant ought to do under like circumstances. It would have been unworthy of the gospel for Paul and Silas to have crept off in a private manner, leaving the people to infer that they were culprits, allowed to escape by mere indulgence. Christianity is as bold, faithful, and heroic in asserting its rights and sustaining its just reputation as it is non-resistant in respect to returning injury for injury. It is never mean and skulking, but always open, frank, dignified, and godlike. The next instance cited is mentioned in the 22nd chapter of Acts. The Jews had raised a mob and rushed on Paul to kill him. While they were cruelly beating him, the chief captain came upon them with his soldiers and made Paul his prisoner, causing him to be bound with two chains and to be conducted to the castle. Having reached the stairs of the castle, he asked permission to address the excited multitude. He was permitted and was heard for a short time with great attention. But on declaring that God had commissioned him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the whole throng broke out in the most furious invectives, saying, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. This was an extraordinary state of things. An innocent man falsely accused and maliciously assailed by a crowd of bigoted and ferocious Jews 
solely on account of his Christianity, was about to be cruelly scourged to extort a confession of some suspect secret. Paul, being a freeborn Roman citizen and knowing himself privileged by the single fact from such gross outrage, demanded, as they were, binding him with thongs, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? This stayed the proceedings instantly. Take heed, said the centurion to the chief, a captain, what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. Tell me, art thou a Roman? said the captain. Paul said, yes. The captain answered, with a great sum I obtained this freedom, but I was freeborn, replied the prisoner. Then straightway they departed from him, which should have examined him, and the chief captain also was afraid after he knew that he was a Roman, and because he had bound him. Here was one remarkable excellency of the Roman law and authority. A Roman citizen must be treated with a certain degree of respect, and fairly heard in his own defense, even though guilty of great crimes. He must be regularly condemned before being subjected to the treatment of a felon. This was nothing but a dictate of plain justice and common sense. But observe, Paul had not recently gone and purchased his privilege of Roman citizenship in order to provide against such contingencies as these. He was freeborn. All he did was remind those who were about to violate the Roman law by scourging him uncondemned of his rights. He threatens nothing. He only throws them upon their own responsibility. It was his right and privilege to be dealt with civilly till fairly tried. He pleaded his rights in the most unassuming manner possible and left those who had his person in their power to act for themselves. How just, how honorable, how meek, how noble, how non-resistant was this conduct. There's nothing in it which any non-resistant in like circumstances might not and ought not copy. The next instance followed soon after. It is recorded in the 23rd chapter of Acts. Paul, still a prisoner in the castle, had received a partial hearing before the chief priests and their council. Meantime, 40 of his most violent enemies banded together under oath not to eat or drink till they had killed him. To find an opportunity for their deadly assault, they agreed to request the chief captain to bring Paul again before the council for further hearing intending, while he was imperfectly guarded, to rush upon him and effect their purposes. Paul's sister's son, getting knowledge of this conspiracy, communicated it to his uncle, who thereupon called one of the centurions and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. The young man did his errand to the chief captain, who kindly sent him away under the charge of silence, respecting the matter. To prevent bloodshed and all further violence, the chief captain ordered 460 of his soldiers to convey Paul during the night to Caesarea, to Felix the governor. This was the threatened mischief avoided. This is what some understand to be Paul's application for a military force to protect his person. Did Paul apply for protection? Did he demand a military escort? Did he ask anything or recommend anything except barely that the centurion would conduct his nephew to the chief captain, that he might communicate his message. No, nothing. He was a helpless prisoner, guarded by the chief captain's soldiers. It was the duty of that officer to afford him such personal protection as was due to all Roman citizens. Paul knew from his preceding conduct that the chief captain was desirous of discharging his duty according to law. He was appraised of a deadly conspiracy formed against him. 
Had he been his own man, non-resistance would have admonished him to escape the danger by flight. But he was a prisoner. He was to be brought within reach of his foes under treacherous pretenses of a desire to give him a further hearing, and then murdered in spite of the Roman guard. What could he, or ought he have, to do, ought he have done, either save his own life or pay proper respect to the chief captain, less than to cause the simple facts to be communicated? Nothing. It was his duty. He would have been most criminal had he done otherwise. He meditated no counterattack on the guilty. He sought no means of punishing them. He counseled no measure of violence. He recommended nothing, threatened nothing, demanded nothing. He caused the proper information to be conveyed to the captain and meekly left all to his discretion. And the captain proved his good sense, as well as pacific disposition, by so disposing of the prisoner as to prevent all violence and danger. In all this manner, Paul acted just as any Christian non-resistant in such circumstances should act most unexceptionably. His appeal to Caesar followed in the train of these events. It is mentioned in the 25th chapter. What was the nature and design of that appeal? He had been falsely accused, subjected to a long imprisonment, and partially tried for heresy and sedition. His trial was still pending after a two-year delay of justice. Festus, the new governor, found Paul still in bonds. The high priest and chief of the Jews now moved their suit afresh and requested that Paul might be sent to Jerusalem, lying in wait in the way to kill him. But not succeeding in this plot, the Jews went down to Caesarea to renew their accusations before the governor's judgment seat. Paul reaffirmed his innocence of all their charges, and nothing could be made out against him. Festus, the governor, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, asked Paul if he would go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things. Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender, or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof they accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. How noble and Christian like this appeal! Jerusalem was no place for an impartial trial. It was only adding insult to injury. To propose under such circumstances, pretexts, to take him back among the prejudiced and bloodthirsty men. If he must be further tried, he claimed his privilege to appear before a higher and more impartial court, to go to Rome. God had directed him in a vision to do so, for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel in that great city. His defense was, in fact, nothing but the defense of the gospel. He therefore appealed to Caesar. He was not the accuser, but the accused. He had not come into court to complain of and procure the punishment of his enemies. He was not the prosecutor in the case, but a prisoner falsely accused, detained in bonds unjustly, and now laid under the necessity of going to Jerusalem or to Rome for the conclusion of his trial. He might have his choice. It was his acknowledged privilege and he availed himself of it as a duty to the cause of Christ no less than as a right. And in this, as in the other instances, he acted just as he ought to have acted, just as any Christian, non-resistant, would be bound to act. Neither of the cases cited implies the slightest inconsistency of conduct with the doctrine of which they are brought as objections. Conclusion Having thus thoroughly canvassed all the important objections to my doctrine, which I recollect ever to have seen presented out of the scriptures, 
I may now confidently appeal to the understanding uh, and conscience of the Christian reader for a favorable, favorable verdict. Have I not triumphantly demonstrated that the Holy Scriptures teach the doctrine of non-resistance as defined in the first chapter of this work? Have I not fairly answered the objections urged from the Scriptures against it? Is there any doctrine or duty taught in the Bible which can be sustained by more convincing testimony? or that can be more satisfactorily freed from objections. It seems to me that candid minds, after serious investigation of the subject, can come to no other conclusion. I know that it is a momentous conclusion, drawing after it the most radical change of views, feelings, conduct, and character throughout Christendom and the world which can well be imagined. But will it not be a most glorious and salutary revolution? When all who sincerely reverence the Bible as in any sacred sense of the word of God to mankind, shall contemplate the Old Testament as the prophecy and preparative of the new, pointing forward to the perfect development of moral excellence under the reign of Jesus Christ, when they shall see his precepts, examples, and spirit a perfect manifestation of the divine wisdom and goodness, and shall feel that his righteousness imbibed into the hearts and exhibited in the lives of mankind is the only remedy for all the world's disorders. Fly swift around, ye wheels of time, and bring the welcome day. I know I say it after every chapter, but man, just reading Balu again here, it's like every chapter just gets more potent, and, and he's so insightful. And it's it's not even that I haven't heard a lot of these arguments before. Um, he just says them so well, and he organizes things so well. Um and, and there are actually aspects of, of his arguments that I think he does better than than anybody else or some things that you don't really find elsewhere. Uh, they aren't as common. So he's such a good guy to read. I mean, if I could recommend one book on Christian non-resistance, uh, it, would, it would be this one. This is so, so good. So anyway, I, I have a lot of notes on this chapter as I was reading through it and kind of pausing and, and writing some things down. I don't want to belabor this since, I mean, the episode's already at, uh, one and a quarter hours. Um, but I, I do want to draw some things out anyway, so I'll, I'll try to keep it concise. His, his first objection, talking about the Old Testament, I think is something that um, a lot of conservative evangelicals are going to have problems with. Uh, particularly, you think of the doctrine of inerrancy. And it can, inerrancy can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But I, I think a lot of people think of inerrancy as meaning like the Bible has to mean exactly what it says. So in the Old Testament, um, you know, when, when Moses institutes a law, that's God's wish. Like that's what God wants, right? That, that must be a good. And so if God said that they can go fight in wars and do this and do that, then that must be allowable permissible by God, right? Um, yet, we obviously don't believe that because there are so many Old Testament laws, not even just ceremonial laws, but also uh, civic laws and moral laws that we don't follow. The Sabbath, that's a moral law. And a lot of Christians would say that's, that's abrogated. Yet, it's one of the Ten Commandments, and we, we always want the Ten Commandments hung up in courts. But, um, you know, really, we only believe in the Nine Commandments. Um, so we, we pick and choose the laws which we think are abrogated. And then if you say, um, 
an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? Uh, capital punishment is abrogated. Um, they're going to say, well, you don't believe in inerrancy. And so so it, it just, it, it's very duplicitous. I know unintentionally so sometimes, but it, it's duplicitous to, to believe that some laws are abrogated, yet uh, claim that somebody is, is lowering the standard of the Bible when they, when they would say that certain things aren't intended by God. And divorce is one of the clear ones, right? Divorce is one of the clear ones where Jesus says, yeah, that was a law, no good. Not, not a good law. Um, so it's clear that certain things are abrogated. And I like what Balu does with this because he, he says, um, I hold the Bible to a higher standard than, than you, yet you claim that I undermine the Bible because my Bible says, my Old Testament says, hey, look, there's going to be this prophet who comes. Moses says, listen to what he says. He's going to say some crazy things. Listen to him. Like we, we are telling you that something better is coming and be prepared for it. Like, we're preparing the way. Um, so to to think that Jesus comes and props up Moses, you get it backwards. Moses builds to Jesus, and Jesus is the, the big revelation. Like, he's the thing that they're preparing the way for. John the Baptist says the same thing. And then you get to Hebrews, and you get to the New Testament, and the New Testament calls the old a shadow. And it says Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. Jesus says, you see me, you've seen the Father, right? Not, you have seen Moses, therefore you've seen the Father, but Jesus is the fulfillment, the, the completion, the rounding out, the true vision of what Moses in the Old Testament was building up to. And I, I think Balu just nails that. Um, right around the 12-minute mark of this, if you go back there, it might be 11 minutes, I don't, I don't remember, but... Um, I know it's hard, especially with the the older English, to listen to a lot of these Bible verses like repeated. But if you go right around to the eleven or twelve minute mark, Balu like he synthesizes, he he compiles all of those long verses into kind of their their summary statements. And when you put them all together, you're like, wow, the Bible really does indicate what what Balu is saying, and this idea that the Old and New Testament have equal weight. And, and force and clarity is not biblical. That, that undermines the trajectory of the Bible. It undermines the, the Old and New Testament and what the Old Testament prophets said and what the New Testament um, biblical writers said. So if you really want to hold the Bible up high and you believe in inerrancy and or infallibility, you got to go with what Balu said. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he shows us what the true intent of God's heart is and what um, Moses got wrong explicitly in the divorce law, but also in the lex talionis, the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Clearly, he got it wrong um, because God in his redemptive work worked with peoples um, up to Jesus, right? He, he couldn't have just sent Jesus back to Moses, he, Jesus would have been incomprehensible because there, there's nothing to build on. You see this on the road to Emmaus where, where Jesus expounds and, uh, to, to the people that he's traveling with, and he says, hey, look, he, here I am in all of the Old Testament. See, they were pointing to me. Had Jesus just shown up to Moses or Abraham, the, there wouldn't have been uh, any uh, preparatory revelation. And so, anyway... 
uh, Balu's awesome here. And, and I think particularly powerful to conservative evangelicals who are going to try to say that um, dismissing certain parts of the Old Testament is undermining your, your belief in the authority of the Bible. The second thing Balu gets to, which um, I think is maybe one of the, the weaker ones, I've seen better arguments elsewhere. He talks about the temple cleansing. And Balu alludes to, but he doesn't really set up this idea that Jesus had these cords, um, that they were rushes. He calls them rushes. And I've seen some good explanations of um, the symbolism that you can find in other like Jewish writings or Old Testament prophets where they kind of made these symbolic rushes out of reeds and they weren't really like whips like we think of. Uh, and I, I forget all the arguments. It has to do with the word that they used for it and, and precedent. But some people are going to argue that Jesus' action is symbolic here. Um, like he really does go in and, and push the money lenders out, but it's, it's uh, like prophetic symbolism. And that makes sense too, because if you think about where it's, um, where it's placed in the timeline of Jesus' life, it's uh, right at the end of his ministry, right before he's crucified. And Jesus does quite a lot of prophetic things, riding on a donkey, um, cleansing the temple here with the with the whips, um, w- with the two swords, which we'll get to, which is is also very prophetic. You know, he says, uh, it says, thus, you know, so the prophecy would be fulfilled. Right? He has them get two swords so he can be numbered with the transgressors so the prophecy could be filled, fulfilled. And there's tons of that going on in the last week of his life. And so this cleansing of the temple, temple is symbolic. Um, it, it's, it's a prophecy fulfillment. Uh, it's it's a depiction of of what's going to happen. I mean, just think about it for a minute. Do you think that after thirty three years of life, three years of ministry, this was the first time that Jesus was all of a sudden ticked at the money changers and had this zeal that made him want to to kick them out? Uh, I mean. I guess it's speculation, but I would say, of course not. Like, they've been doing this the whole time that Jesus has been alive and the whole time that he's he's been doing this ministry. So why all of a sudden this zeal and this expression of uh, with, with the uh, cord of rushes and such? And, I mean, it seems clear that it's it's theater. Like, it's not disingenuous theater. It's not like Jesus doesn't really care what's going on in the temple. It's that, it's at this point, this last week of his life, that he's he's fulfilling prophecies um, to a larger extent, and he's he's making a point, like he's he's bringing everything um, together for his his crucifixion, and um, he's tying up loose ends, and um, he's making a scene. So it's not like Jesus was was in the temple for the first time, and oh no, all of a sudden these money changers like. Oh my goodness, what are they doing? They're terrible. I need to, like I have this zeal and this anger against these people that I, I'm going to all of a sudden uh, kick them out because I, I'm angry and I just can't control myself. Um, no, this is, this is a culmination and this is a, uh, this is, um, a demonstration. It's, it's prophetic. Like you look at the, the Old Testament prophets and they cooked stuff over their own poop and they did all kinds of things, like crazy things, weird things, um, exuberant things, like they did um, extreme things. And this is Jesus, who's doing a genuine thing, 
but uh, something that's theater that is meant to to portray something. And so I, I I'm kind of with Balu here. You know, you can imagine it how you want to imagine it because we're given very limited information. But it seems to me in the context that I don't think Jesus is all of a sudden ticked and he's going around trying to hurt people. Um, both from historical context of of what the Old Testament prophets did, what we know um, about making these symbolic cords of rushes. Um, John specifically says that he drove out the sheep and the oxen or the cattle and the oxen. Um, so yeah. The third thing that Balu talks about is the two swords. And we have a whole episode on this, and I would actually even defer you to um, Michael Heiser has an episode where he interviews somebody uh, about this, and I, I think his is pretty good. It's it's a very narrow explanation. Um, he doesn't give you kind of a breadth of explanations, I don't think, um, but it's a really good singular explanation. So Balu covers three of the explanations that I think are, are decent. You know, first, obviously, two swords being enough uh, for self-defense is ridiculous. Like, obviously, um, Jesus wasn't saying, uh, oh, yeah, good, we're, we're good to protect ourselves. Um, so that that's first. Second, you know, he, he clearly demonstrates that if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So Balu says, yeah, maybe it was for self-defense or maybe it was to point out that it's the opposite, right? So, hey, bring some swords so I can make it an object lesson of don't use them, right? And and um, then he also points to, like, the early Christian church. And for the first 300 years, they're not bearing the sword. And you've got people like Tertullian saying, in disarming Peter, Christ disarmed all of us, like all Christians, the, the whole church. Um, and so th- those three things are what Balu points out. And then I would add to that that you don't even have to speculate about the purpose because um, in Luke specifically, it says that Jesus told them to buy swords so that he would be numbered with the transgressors. Like, there's specific instructions. Um, he tells us what the point of that is. Uh, we don't have to speculate. And then the other thing I would add, which is the thing that you'll get from Heiser, uh, Heiser's interview, is that um, you can compare this to the early mandate, right? Jesus says, hey, don't take a purse, don't take this with you, don't take that, take this. And then when he gets here, he, he kind of inverts it and he does the opposite. He's like, hey, when I sent you out and told you not to take such and such, were you lacking anything? And the disciples are like, no. He's like, okay, well, tell you what, why don't you go do the opposite and see how that works out for you? And um, it, it's it's kind of like a, a shaming point where it's like, oh, yeah, we're kind of like we didn't lack anything, but now we're kind of uh, cowering down and, and doing the opposite of what we've been commanded. And I know that this, I mean, this happens in, in my life. So as a missionary, um, our first time going out, it was hard to have faith. Like, how are we going to raise the support? How is God going to provide? But he did provide. And I could tell you some miraculous stories of, of how that came about. A number of things that are inexplicable, but, but by God. And then, you know, we get stuck here with COVID and um, we lose some support. And now we're, uh, as I record this, we're in the process of trying to garner that support back up. And it's hard to have faith in God. Why? He provided for us before. If this is something he wants us to pursue, he'll provide for us again. And if he doesn't, then he'll provide for us to do whatever it is he calls us to do. 
Um, and so I, I understand that, uh, the disciples' failure in faith, but you know, I think this, this might be kind of one of those repetitious object lessons. Like, okay, you, you had faith in me before and it was hard, but you found that I was good master. You found that I provided for you. But now you're evidencing that you need faith anew because you're doing the opposite of what I've, I've told you to do. And look, proof, you've got two swords on you. Why do you have two swords on you? Um, so that's, that's uh, one of the explanations. And you can go back and listen to our episode, I think from season one, and, and kind of look into that. But um, Balu touches on that here. And I, I, I think you can find better explanations elsewhere, both for his temple cleansing and for the two swords. But he, um, he does okay. Then Balu touches on Ananias and Sapphira. It doesn't really, he doesn't really touch on it too much. Um, and, and this would get back into the, I guess it depends on if you think it's the character of God to not kill or not. You know, if you're going to say that, well, it's God's prerogative to take life, then it's not a big deal if Ananias and Sapphira die. But Balu just points out that it wasn't the church that executed them, and um, it was, they didn't even declare that they desired their, their death. Um, so he doesn't really touch on it that much, and that might still be something that, that stands out for you. But what he does spend a lot of time on is when he gets into government. And I, I don't know that I, I understand exactly uh, Balu's point here, so I'm going to try to explain what I think he means, um, particularly in the government per se aspect. So I'll try to explain a little bit of what I think he means, but it's something that I need to reread and something that you'd probably want to dig into as well. So Balu classifies the government as being grounded in one of three ways. Um, and I guess you can probably, yeah, you can double dip. Um, but he said it's really important to kind of classify this in three ways. So you've got the government per se, the government de jure, and the government de facto. So he says that the government per se is kind of like just its its grounding. Uh, I don't know if you'd call it like its ontology. Uh, I don't know exactly, but... Um, so he says, like, this idea of government is, is basically this idea of, of ordering and such and authority. And those things, that, that moral order is inherent to God. So it, it flows out from him. Um, and we are able to recognize this governing order, but it's an order that we, we submit to. We don't create or control. So it's kind of like when when uh, God in the Garden of Eden said, hey, look, don't, don't eat from the tree of, the, of, of good and evil, right? Don't decide good and evil for yourself. You're not moral arbiters. That's for me to declare. Um, and when Adam and Eve tried to become like God and make decisions and, and take the means into their own hands, um, they corrupted the moral order. And so we are not able to create moral order. We are only able to recognize it because it's grounded in, in the being of God. We can't create it anew. And what government does, um, or, and what, what this idea of government per se is, it's, it's basically the grounding of government. Government as it is, ontologically, metaphysically, whatever it is, is grounded in the being of God. Maybe a different way to, to kind of view this would be life. I think... If I, if I get Balu correct, I think it would be kind of the same thing with life, right? So we would say that life is grounded in God. All life flows forth from him. And so we've got this, this verse in the New Testament that says, 
um, by him and in him and through him are all things uh, basically upheld, right? So Jesus created all things, including life, and he sustains all things, including life. And so we as humans, we can recognize life and we can, um, we can experience life and we can live life, right? We are alive, but it's not something that, that we create um, or, or control. It emanates from God and we have the benefits of it, but we, don't, we aren't distributors of it or creators of it or um, makers of new life. And sure, we have kids, um, but that's not really something that we can do. Like, we don't do that. God has given us a, a process, and through him, um, new life comes to be. So, with that in mind, um, Balu gets into uh, government de jure and government de facto. So, basically, by law or just by fact. And Balu ends up arguing that really the government that we see isn't de jure government, but it's de facto government. It's it's people basically playing God. It's people um, just administering the, the, the laws and things that, that they kind of determine. Uh, and it's something that they don't have the power or the right to do because such a thing is, is grounded in God and emanates from him. If you go back to uh, the 53-minute mark, um, I, I think Balu hits on, on something that is very good and, and something that I, I think puts Romans 13 into context because the, the way that I interpret Romans 13, especially in light of Romans 12, is you've got these Christians who are under these egregious, horribly immoral governments, and they're like, look, Paul, you're telling us to love our enemies. You're telling us to leave vengeance to God. Don't you know that Caesar's in control? And Paul says, hey, look, God controls all things. Um, Caesar, Caesar, right, submit to government. Like, you, you don't worry about them, right? Government's going to do what government's going to do de facto. They're going to they're gonna be government, and they're going to try to usurp God. But you know what? God, they are God's ministers, because they God controls all things, and uh, Balu does a really good job of going into you know Pharaoh and Assyria and Babylon and showing how like Nebuchadnezzar uh, or Assyria they're called God's ministers or God's tools. God wields them, and Balu does a really good job of showing how these governments are not you know de jure. It's not like God establishes these governments in the sense that He's like. Yeah, I want I want this government to usurp me. It's more de facto where Assyria says, "Oh yes, for my selfish reasons, I'm going to take power and I'm going to control." And then God says, "Okay, you do that de facto. You you do that in reality, like you you play that game. That's fine. I'll I'll let you do that. But you know what? Uh government per se is grounded in me and I am going to govern history for real while you just pretend to govern history and think you're governing history. And so um, Balu, Balu points that out because when it, when it talks about ministers, the government being ministers of God in Romans 13, some people, for like they throw off the whole train of thought that the Bible has on governments and empires. 
And they say, oh yeah, see, God likes government. God's setting governments up because he wants them to, to play God. It's like, no, 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 that's not at all what God is doing. And Balu does a fantastic job of, of showing that here. And um, I think his, his three ideas of government, even though the per se is maybe the hardest to kind of grasp, um, working through that, I think, gives you a really, really good understanding of um, how to start digging into Romans 13. All right, to kind of round this out, a uh, couple extra notes. I did think it was interesting that Balu said government, he thinks it's possible for Christians to be in government, right? So long as you don't have to betray any of the the majors. And so he was talking about, look, idolatry is inherent in most government, violence, those sorts of things. But I don't know why you couldn't work for the post office, maybe, or be a public school teacher, maybe. I mean, it depends. There might be some things that, that certain positions at certain places might require of you that would undermine your Christianity. But, I mean, government isn't isn't all bad, isn't all usurpation. So you can probably find some roles. Maybe a city council. I don't know. It depends. Are you legislating and putting the power of the sword behind it? Or... Um, yeah, I, I guess it would just depend. So he, he leaves open the possibility that you could participate in government in some form or fashion. And Balu finishes out the, the chapter by taking a look at a bunch of um, scenarios from Paul, which I think are really productive to look at because I know that, that Paul is used a lot with his like invocation of citizenship. And Balu does a good job in all of the scenarios to show that, look, Paul is not pursuing his rights, but he's making the truth known. In all of the cases, he's under Roman Roman jurisdiction. They arrest him. He doesn't go and press charges on people. But um, now I think the one where, where he's detained and people are going to kill him is maybe the most powerful one because, you know, think about it. He's under Roma's, Roman jurisdiction, and if this guy allows Paul to die, um, that commander could be maybe executed himself. Like, So Paul is just saying, hey, look, I, I want to let you know some people are out there to kill me, okay? You do with that what you want to do with that. And he's not, he's not saying, oh, give me a military escort, like give me protection, all this kind of stuff. He's already under Roman jurisdiction, and he knows the law, and he says, hey, look, do what you're going to do. So I think Balu does a great job expounding on, on Paul's experiences, I don't think it's really forced at all. I think what he says makes sense and his distinction makes sense. Um, and and it kind of mirrors some of the things that we said in our season on government and our evaluations. Whew. So that was a hefty chapter. Um, there's a lot there. And I think maybe one of the most productive chapters to point naysayers of uh, Christian nonviolence and, and uh, you know, government, the, the idea of government. I think there's so much richness in this section, and I think Balu does it concisely. He does it uh, winsomely. He does it, um, he has a great use of words and wit, and it's just great. So that's chapter three. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, When I say it, I mean it.
podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.